Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday, and this is By the Glass. Happy Friday. Oh gosh, the sun's shining in Melbourne and I've got a glass of sparkling wine in my hand. Sparkling wine and of course champagne uh, have got to be my go-to. So this episode is well and truly overdue. In fact, I should have led the series with this episode. Uh, Today I am joined by Kate Laurie from Deviation Road in the Adelaide Hills. Now, alongside her husband, Hamish, Kate took out the top prize in the sparkling category at this year's Halliday Wine Companion Awards with her 2014 Beltana Blanc de Blanc. Raised in WA, Kate actually lived in Champagne, France for three years after graduating university to hone her skills in traditional method sparkling. So who better to chat with about all things bubbles? Kate, congratulations on the win. Oh, thank you, Tom, and thanks for having me here today. That's okay. Oh, God, what a lovely way to spend a Friday. Oh, I agree. There's nothing better than bubbles on a Friday. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And on that, Kate, why sparkling? Oh, look, there's a long answer and a short answer to that one, Tom, but the short answer is it makes me feel good. Uh, <laughs> That's just, brilliant. It, it really, it, yeah, no, I just, um, there's so much promise in a glass, a glass of bubbles. Um, there's a, so much technique behind making it. Uh, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. So, yeah, but really it just makes me feel good. <laughs> oh, God, you're already <laughs> my type of lady. Kate, champagne, sparkling, let's start with the basics. What's the difference? Because so often people throw the term champagne around to describe anything with bubbles. Yes, it's quite a delicate topic, that one, because it's embarrassing correcting people. But really, we can't call anything champagne unless it's made in the region of champagne in France. It's sort of an appellation control. So um, because it originated there and it's a region, really the word can only be associated with the sparkling wine that comes from champagne. So in Australia, we just call it sparkling wine, but we refer to the fact that um, when we're using it, we acknowledge the traditional method that we're using, which comes from the Champenoise. And what grape varietals are traditionally used in champagne and sparkling wine? Well, there are actually seven that are traditionally used over there, but the ones that we talk about commonly are the two uh, red-skinned, uh, black-skinned varieties, Pinot Noir and Mernier, and then Chardonnay, which is obviously known for the white wines. And actually that's quite interesting because you've just mentioned two red varietals. Why do we not see the colour of those come through many sparkling wines? Well, the interesting thing about making red wine is all of the colour comes out of the skin. So when we're making a red in the winery, we literally ferment on the skin. So the alcohol that comes out extracts the colour. When we're making a sparkling wine from the same varieties, we actually press them really quickly after harvest um, as whole bunches and just extract the juice, which in fact is clear. So without leaving it on the skin, you actually pull out a white juice and which then ferments uh, into a white wine. Yeah, right. 
Oh, and obviously we've got so so many topics that we want to run through today, but I want to start with um, a basic, you know, vintage versus non-vintage. What's the difference? Well, vintage actually refers to the year that the, the grapes were picked um, and non-vintage is a blend of multiple vintages. And this term kind of came around because in Champagne, it, where it is um, in the in the Northern Hemisphere, is actually so far north that it's at the limit of actually ripening grapes. So some years in Champagne, especially before global warming started to show its impact, they would struggle and the grapes would be quite sour and lean. So they cottoned onto the fact that in a good year it was really smart to hold some of that wine back as a reserve so that when they had bad years they could blend these reserve wines and still have a nice product to sell. So it came out of, um, you know, that's the history of why we have these non-vintage blends coming out of Champagne, but it then has formulated this new style, not a new style, but a style of wine that we expect to see from from really good champagne houses is this consistency in, in quality. And with a non-vintage champagne or sparkling, how do champagne houses maintain that consistent flavour profile in the face of changing seasons year, year in, year out? Well, the thing about vintage champagne is, you, for me personally anyway, or sparkling wine I should say, of course, is I'm not trying to make my vintage sparklings look the same. They're more of a, a reflection of that year, and if it's good enough to be made into a vintage, then I'll, that's what you express in the bottle. Um, so with the non-vintage blends, the real art of the winemaker is knowing which parcels to pull from to actually make a consistent product so that when you release the next year's non-vintage blend, it still looks the same. So wherever you are in the world, you buy a bottle of non-vintage Charles Heidsick, for example, it should look very similar to that style, whereas the vintage, you expect the variation. And with those non-vintages, year in, year out, do they blend it from previous vintages? So if I'm a regular Verve drinker, for example, my palate just evolves over the years with Verve as they blend from previous vintages, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, look, what, what they tend to do, there are a couple of ways you can hold your reserve wines. Um, some of the bigger houses with obviously a lot, a lot of capital, they can keep each vintage separate. And then they will blend from every single parcel every time they make their next year's blend. Or other houses um, use what we call a, like a Solera method where you top up a tank, which is already a blend of multiple vintages, with the fresh vintage and draw down from that. So there are two ways you can do it. Um, and I suppose depending on how much blending you want to do, um, if you've got like 25 different vintages in different batches, the effort and the you know the input will be a lot more laborious than if you've got your Solera method with that's your parcel of non-vintage reserve. I guess that's how champagne houses hook you in as a uh, regular drinker. I think you're absolutely right. So no matter where you are in the globe, you pick up that bottle of Charles Heidsick non-vintage or Mum non-vintage, it should taste the same. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yes. Well, very similar, very similar, yeah. And where in Australia are people making sparkling right now? Look, as I said before, because the champagne is so far north um, in in France, what makes it stand out is this beautiful high natural acidity that you have in the grape. So, um, and the varieties are adapted to these cooler regions. So, to, because we like that style, that style has become something that everybody's looking for. What we do in Australia is we find the regions which are the cooler climatic viticulture regions where these varieties are suited to, and then you know, use those different influences to have similar cool climate impact on the on, on the grapes with high natural acidity. So if you look at the Adelaide Hills, for example, because that's close to my heart, we're actually sandwiched between the Barossa and the McLaren Vale. So 
these are traditionally warm regions making big reds. But because the Adelaide Hills, for example, is um, in the Mount Lofty Ranges and altitudes up to 650 metres, that has a, a significant cooling effect on the viticulture in our region. Whereas in Tasmania, it's not, a, it's not altitude which helps, it's latitude. So it's cooler because it's down, you know, in the southern oceans. So there are different ways we can um, sort of find regions in Australia which are suited to this um, this climate and then we can, you know, create high-level, high-quality sparkling wines from these regions. And we're going to focus on Australian sparkling today, in particular traditional methods. Now, there are obviously several ways sparkling wine can be made. Can you give us a bit of a top-line overview? Yeah, good call, Tom, because I am accused often of becoming like a school teacher. so top-line overview is probably clever. <laughs> um, because I actually think there are about five ways you can, there are five ways you can make sparkling wine. But to keep it simple, um, you can either carbonate a wine in a tank, a bit like, I suppose, soda stream. That's a really crude way of looking at it, but you can carbonate That's a wine terrible. like that. That's <laughs> terrible. I know, but then it gets bottled under, you know, you know, expensive equipment to get, to bottle that wine under pressure. So it's actually technolog- technologically difficult, but it's not going to create the complexities in the one that we're probably going to talk about now, which is using the traditional method, where um, every single bottle has been fermented um, in that bottle. So it's like a mini reactor and you have a lot more um, interactions happening in the, in this traditional method style to get the bubbles in the bottle. And obviously we're going to head into that now, this whole notion of traditional method. Now, firstly, what does traditional method mean? Well, you, following the traditional method means um, once you've made the base wine, which is, you know, just is not too different to any other wine that you drink um, other than the fact that it's probably picked a little bit earlier for lower alcohol. Um, but what happens is we put it through a second fermentation in the bottle. So I'm actually just doing that right now. Tourage season has started for me now. And tourage refers to the process where we grow up in a fresh yeast culture which can handle the, um, in the conditions in the bottle add a little bit more sugar back so that it can ferment it. And then we put a beer cap, like a crown seal, as a closure of the bottle. Um, and the bottle then goes through that second fermentation on its own with the yeast in the bottle. And then it ages on those dead yeast after they've done their job for quite a long time. So it's quite an involved process when you do the traditional method. So basically you make a base wine so for for instance with blanc de blanc you're making a base chardonnay wine and then you're putting it into bottles you're adding a bit more sugar you're adding yeast and then you seal it off and the yeast starts eating away at the sugar naturally creating carbon dioxide which is the bubbles that we get and then as those yeast die they just form sediment in the bottle which is called lees so that's I'm on to it. I think I think you've nailed it. You've done well. Past one hundred and one, Barclay Match. But yeah, it is. It, it's interesting that you you know you know so much as well. But it's this is what we specialise in is getting that yeast culture right and getting that second ferment to happen in the bottle. But yeah, you've nailed it. So for people at home that hear the term lees or they hear time on lees and not know what that means, so it's basically once those. Uh, yeast cells die and they sit as sediment in the bottle, that sediment actually enhances the flavour over time. So if it spends three years on lees or six years on lees, it's just developing that flavour with time. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, the yeast lees actually have um, two actions, which um, the the one that you just mentioned then, the most um, important one is the aromatic development, which 
we find happens as the yeast break down and they release their sort of components into the into the wine and lovely toasty, nutty, sometimes flinty characters come in. Um, and that's what we call sort of yeast autolysis and love associating premium sparklings and champagnes with those words. Um, but another thing that yeast do is they're a natural um, sort of scavenger for oxygen and they even though we love the development with time on leaves, they actually slow it down. They're a natural preservative. So mm. while ever the yeast is still in the bottle, it, it retains its freshness. So they, they're, they really are champions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what, they, what they do, what they give to us in this product, it, yeah, we, we, I thank them frequently. <laughs> yeah. And because mm. champagne as a region has very strict rules around how long a uh, bottle of sparkling or bottle of champagne needs to rest on lees in order to hit their required criterion. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in a vintage year that they, so certain houses can determine if they want to release a single vintage um, champagne. Um, and if they decide to do that, it must have three years age minimum on those yeast lees because that's the hallmark of champagne is that complexity. Um, if it's a non-vintage champagne, um, the minimum is 15 months because the reserve wines have already added a level of complexity to that wine as well. So there, there are very strict rules in champagne about what you can and can't do. In Australia, we're not as strict. It's up to the house to let people know uh, how long it's been aged. Um, but because I lived and studied over there, I, I, I tend to adhere to those rules. So I, most of my wines have had two to seven years age on lees before they're released. What would tend to be the longest period a bubbles would spend on lees? Oh, depending on the vintage, you can um, you can keep them on lees for a very long time. It's just the only thing is once you remove them, say if it's been 20 years, like I was actually very privileged the other day to be shown a bottle of 1976 uh, Bollinger that was disgorged only last year. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, it, was, it was very, very developed and, and all of those uh, beautiful characters were there. Um, but I think when you... Looking at something that's been that long on lees, you want to drink it pretty quickly because whether or not it can keep on developing on the cork is, is another question. But So it really does come down to the vintage you're looking at and who made it and, and the lifespan. But um, while ever it's on lees, I think you can keep things, you know, 10, 20 years quite confidently if you've got a, a really good quality-based wine that went down. Okay, so we've done the secondary ferment uh, in the bottle. Uh, the dead lees are at the base of the bottle. Um, it's done all the ageing you want it to do. Then what happens? Then we actually pick all the bottles up and put them on a riddling rack, which um, even though it sounds like it's a joke, it's not. It's actually called a riddling <laughs> rack. <laughs> the, uh, and the idea of this is to sweep down those yeast down into the neck of the bottle so that we can, once it's fully inverted, all of these are in a tiny plug just at the, at the, at the opening under the crown seal. So um, we can then put it into what we call, um, well, it's a neck chiller, um, which is a glycol solution at about minus 20 degrees, which just covers that little plug at the bottom of the bottle and forms an ice block. And once the ice block's formed, you can then lift the bottle back up um, the other way and the yeast don't fall back into the wine, and at which point you can um, disgorge it, which is to take off the beer cap or the crown seal and the pressure that's in the bottle, which is about six bar. And for those of you that you know, have seen a bus driving down the street, that's the pressure in a single bus tyre. So these <laughs> things are actually highly pressurised. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, so disgorging is quite an exciting process, but a lot of, a lot of popping going on because there's more pressure in it at that point than once you've got the cork in. 
Um, but that pressure just blows out that plug of yeast and then we put in that little bit of dosage liquor, which is really just to balance out that acidity that we've got in the base wine with a little bit of sweetness. Um, and depending on what you like, you'll probably choose a wine as a consumer which has more or less of that dosage in it, depending on which house you're buying. And then it gets a cork and, and it's off to market a few weeks later. So when you say dosage, you're referring to um, the amount of sweetness that you put back into the bubbles before you cork it off? Yes, absolutely, because once the yeast are removed, there's no chance of that being fermented again. So you can just sweeten it and it's sort of depending on where you are, but it's you, I've got about five or six different dosing liquors up at the winery. That's my sort of my, my secret herbs and spices and that's where you just sort of <laughs> make your finishing touches. On the complexity of the wine, but it's, it's basically just a, it's just a it's a reserve wine blend with sugar in it, so you can um, just finish off your wine before the cork goes in. You made it sound like KFC just then with the herbs. Oh, I did. Spice. I know. Not, not very professional, was I? But, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I can't give all my secrets out of it. You know? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> um, tra- so traditional uh, methods, sparkling, uh, can display beautiful examples of primary, secondary and tertiary characteristics. I want to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, Firstly, for people at home, what is the difference between a primary, a secondary and a tertiary characteristic? Well, primary aromas are really what you get from the grape itself. So we talk about sort of peach and nectarine and things like that or cherries and um, strawberries. They're the primary aromas that come and different varieties have these aromas in lesser or greater quantities. Um, people who drink Sauvignon Blanc would know they can be quite herbaceous and grassy, for example, and that's a primary aroma. The secondary aromas are the aromas that evolve after the fermentations happen in the winery, so they become a little bit more complex and they're sort of winemaker-derived aromas. And then when we start talking tertiary, we really are in sparkling territory here because these tertiary aromas um, are what arise after age and time and then you get these complexity complex aromas that develop. So really um, tertiary aromas are time and age related. And in the context of uh, sparkling and champagne, what are the processes that give secondary and tertiary characteristics? Well, in some respects, um, a sparkling wine, the secondary aromas are no different to a still wine in that the winemaker can choose to either ferment in stainless steel, for example, and preserve more of the pure fruit primary aromas or ferment in, in oak, which gives more um, toasty, nutty, charry characters. So, and different evolutions happen when you ferment in oak. So there are, there are elements that you can play with as a winemaker which will determine your style ultimately. And so with sparkling, what's added on top of that is if we do things like malolactic fermentation. So that softens the malic acid, which is that sort of green apple acid that, you know, is nice and fresh, into a creamy lactic acid. So that as well will give um, different layers of secondary aroma into the base wine. And then when we go through the second ferment and age on the yeast leaves, as they decompose and as the wine itself ages in that bottle, you're moving into these tertiary aromas. So you're going to have some more nutty, toasty, brioche, creamy, sometimes oyster shell. So really the style of the, the sparkling wine that you get at the end of the day, it's worth knowing your producer because from what I've just explained, there are so many different paths you can take in the process of making a wine to, de- to determine the final style. And we're going to do, well, the one thing I've been looking forward to most today is trying these beautiful sparklings <laughs> of yours. Uh, we're going to do a tasting with several of your sparklings today, which 
you know, will also help us compare different styles of sparkling uh, champagne. Uh, we're going to start with a Blanc de Noir, your Southcote. Can you explain to me what does Blanc de Noir mean? Well, Blanc de Noir you can use basically to describe any white wine that's been made from a red grape. And as I was explaining before, just that process of extracting the juice before it macerates on the skin will produce a white juice. In the context of sparkling, when Blanc de Noir is mentioned, it traditionally meant it's going to be made from Pinot Noir or Meunier. Um, so in the case of the Southcote that we're going to taste together, Tom, that's actually um, 100% um, Pinot Noir. And they're sort of my favourite parcels that come in, in particularly good vintages that I'll pull back a little bit and make the this, this wine from. And now what are the typical tasting notes of a Blanc de Noir? Oh, I think if you think of a Pinot Noir as a red form, it's not too dissimilar, but they're much lighter. So when you're going into the red fruits, it's more of a tart raspberry or a strawberry, um, some spice. Um, I see a fair bit of quince and sometimes a lovely red baked apple. So very much in the red fruit spectrum um, with some nice spice in there. Um, but the thing that Pinot Noir brings is a lot of power on the palate because it's a very flavoursome grape anyway. So it really gives the mid-palate um, some lovely, lovely weight um, and then if you pick it early enough with a nice acidity, it's still got that lovely sherbet finish. Now, moving on to the most exciting wine of the hour, your award-winning Blanc de Blanc. Comparing it to the Blanc de Noir, the turn of phrase Blanc de Blanc, what does that indicate? Well, it's actually just this, it's very similar in the fact that it's a white wine, but this time it's 100% from a white grape. So the Blanc de Blanc is actually traditionally famous in Champagne for being 100% Chardonnay. And Chardonnay itself, when you make a base wine out of Chardonnay, doesn't have anywhere near as many aromas as something like the Pinot Noir does. So Chardonnay really lends itself to this ageing potential in which these beautiful aromas that I particularly love come out. So for me, Chardonnay and Blanc de Blanc is something that I really want to do. Um, and when this wine was born, when we the first one in 2008, was to be able to showcase what really good parcels of Adelaide Hills Chardonnay can do with extended time ageing on those yeasts we've been talking about. And this one in particular has had, um, you know, six and a half years on those yeast leaves. And so when comparing a flavour profile between a Blanc de Noir and a Blanc de Blanc, what would people notice? Well, definitely a citrus line and spectrum and more floral characters in the Chardonnays, in the Blanc de Blanc, where you've got the more red-fruited um, characters coming out of the Pinot. Um, and also there's this sort of oyster shell minerality and a power of line and focus down the palate that Chardonnay brings, which I particularly love. It's just, you know, when I'm tasting all of my parcels before when I'm doing blending, the Chardonnay parcels that stand out are like an arrow down the, down down my palate and then I know that I'm onto something. Yeah, <laughs> they're really friends. exciting. That sounded very nerdy. I Because yeah, <laughs> as, as I'm drinking this particular one, it ha- it's so lemony. Yeah, and, and, that, and, that, and that comes down to picking date. I do pick quite early because I don't want any other um, tropical characters or anything like that coming into the wine. I want it to stay quite, quite tight and lean and let those ageing tertiary aromas come in and lift the wine instead. And so when you were talking about ageing, right, now obviously you do most of the ageing, all the hard work in the bottle, right? That's six and a half years this particular Blanc de Blanc has on Lees, right, resting down, developing those tertiary characteristics. When it's disgorged 
corked off and sold to the consumer, should they just drink it straight away or has it got the potential to age further? Look, there's definitely potential for it to continue ageing, especially when it's made from a cool climate, you know, really good base wine. But it's uh, the interesting thing, as I was saying before, is once those yeast, which are the natural antioxidant, are removed, the wine will develop faster than if those yeast leaves were still in there. So once we've put the cork in the bottle, we think it's in a good place to drink now, but it will still keep developing, but it will just develop a little bit faster. So I would, you know, definitely two to three years and it's a really good quality Blanc de Blanc, maybe even up to five on cork, but the style will be quite different to what you saw, you know, when it was first released. So, you know, if you've got a budget and you're buying somebody's sparkling wine, you can afford a six-pack, drink one straight away and then drink one a year later and a year later and, you know, you start to teach yourself what you like about cork age versus the freshness of straight off leaves. You definitely need to buy a six-pack because, I mean, <laughs> who, who has any self-control these days? <laughs> With a, with, with a, with yeah. I know, it's an indulgence. We all know the sparkling wine can mean indulgence. <laughs> right now we all need we all need a pick-me-up. So. We do at the moment. Oh, my God, these lockdowns never end. But that's, that's perfect right. for wine drinkers <laughs> like myself yes. on Friday. Um, and so moving on to your uh, rosé-style sparkling, I've always wondered this. Obviously, you've got that beautiful blush colour that comes with a rosé-style champagne or um, sparkling traditional method. How do you get that colour? Is it just about time on skins or do you take a different approach? Uh, there are actually there are two ways, really, that we can make a sparkling. And the first one, as you said, Tom, was leaving it on those skins a little bit longer. Um, and that's called a senier method. And that's just some people might just pick the fruit and let it sit there for 10 or 12 hours before they press it off. And that will give um, a beautiful pink blush. Um, but the way that we make it here is to make our still white sparkling wines, but then ferment um, a small amount of the reds on skins the whole way through, and that will create a red wine. Um, and then I just, when we come into the blending stage, we'll just blend a little bit of that red wine back to get the colour and the aroma um, in the wine that I'm after. And it's a, I suppose it's a little bit more control in doing it that way because you can, you know, you're targeting something in particular, whereas the Seigneur method is um, very much it's more, a little bit more organic and it's just, once you've taken it off, that's what it is. Both of them bring you more aroma and more flavour from skin contact, but depending on the style you're after, you can use the addition method as well. And with rosé champagnes or rosé sparklings, are they typically a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir or does it just vary? Look, it vary. Most of them are just a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot. I think Chardonnay is still very important in all sparkling wines just for that line and focus that I was um, rabbiting on about before, which I love. But, um, yeah, pretty much um, probably Pinot Noir dominant to get, that, to get that lovely strawberries and cream and the flesh and the, and the power from the Pinot. Um, the thing about a sparkling rosé is, you, there is it's, it's a bit, they're a more structured, more textural style of, style of wine. So you do look for those red fruits as well. Now, we were chatting uh, off air before we started recording around glassware and you got pretty <laughs> passionate about it because you were like, oh, this topic just really gets me going. How should, yes. we be, how should we be serving our champagne or sparkling? And not just glassware, but temperature as well. Yeah, well, great. Thanks, Tom, for letting me have my, my five minutes here with you. Because, um, <laughs> Take the I- floor. 
Even though the Shaman Wars are brilliant at marketing, what they have done is turned it into traditionally a bit of a party drink, you know, for celebrations only. Um, and so we've been drinking out of flutes and not really paying attention to what was in the glass the way that people are doing so more now. Um, so for me, the, the old flute, the really tall-sided flute, kind of shuts down all the aroma. And a lot of work's gone into making these sparkling wines and so to see them shut down is quite depressing. So we actually serve it as Lador and I always, when I'm out, I'll use a normal wine glass or um, if I can find one of the Riedel, you know, shaped champagne flutes, which now have more of a tulip shape so you get more air contact with the wine as well as the bead, I'll, I'll jump on that because you need to see the aromas that are, are locked in the glass um, just like any other wine that you drink. The thing is, is what I've always liked about a traditional champagne flute is that it maintains the bubbles, right? Like you don't you don't lose the bubbles too quickly. Where I find some of those really wide mouth glasses, the bubbles just evaporate so quickly, which is the part I like yeah. about drinking sparkling. No, and I think to just overcome that is to have smaller pores so that you don't look, you know. Temperature is also really critical. So if the wine warms up, you're going to lose the gas really quickly. So whichever glass you're using, you know, you don't want to fill it to the top because by the time you get to the bottom of that, it's going to taste flat anyway and warm. <laughs> but, um, no, I think well, we'll, the, if you can get a wide, wider-rimmed glass, you don't swirl them the same way you do other wines either because the bubbles in the, in the wine are meant to bring the aromas up to your nose anyway. So often people degas um, sparkling wines by treating it like it's a still wine. You don't need to be as aggressive with, with the wine when you're going through the tasting process. But really, yeah, I agree with you. If you're losing the bubble, then that glass is probably too broad. Yeah, yeah, If it wasn't a podcast, I'd, you'd see the glass I'm using right now and it's one that we've actually scored the base of as well to create what we call a nucleation site, and that actually keeps that bead forming all the way through. What is Okay, you've just thrown that in there. What does that even mean? Because I'm now looking at my glass, which I'm so embarrassed and thank God the video is not on so you can't see that I'm drinking from a champagne flute. But it's it's a stemless glass and it's from Riedel, but it's got a little etching in the centre yeah. at the bottom of the base of the glass. What What is that? Yeah, well, so basically even when you're boiling water in a saucepan, if it's a, if, if it's a perfect saucepan, there's nowhere for the bubble to form, you know, that the water bubble. The same thing is with wine. If you have detergent or if you have a perfect glass, the bubble can't form. So the idea behind that scoring that you're seeing in the Riedel glass and what we do here is by scratching the, the bottom of the glass, you're creating what we call a nucleation site so bubbles can form. And so you have this lovely point at the middle of the glass where you've got this stream of bubbles constantly coming up and then that keeps that. It's, it's kind of emotional seeing the bubble because... The gas is always in the wine. When you put it on your tongue, it'll come out. But seeing it in the glasses is, is just as important. I tell you what, this is exactly why, and, and I don't know if people really appreciate this at home, but this is why an Australian sparkling, say with yours that are made via that traditional method, do cost what they cost because you actually handle every bottle, you know, up to, yes. you told me off camera, like 20 times you touch every single bottle. Extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It is. It's. 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 There are so many stages in making a sparkling. So, um, it because it goes through that second fermentation process, and then you have to riddle it and age it and um, disgorge it, then label it. It's very hands-on. So, I, I do have. Sorry, that was my bottle in the ice bucket. Um, the the time that it takes and the cost of of producing, you know, premium sparkling wine is 
is elevated compared to other wine styles. So um, buying a cheap bubbly um, in the traditional method is it, it should be impossible because it, I, I can't make it cheaper and nobody else can. Um, so I do appreciate your comment there, Tom, because because there are so many ways you can get sparkling wine out there, it's lovely to be able to explain to people why traditional method sparklings cost what they do and what goes into making them so unique um, and personalised, uh, I suppose. Well, and even just, I mean, if you're ageing a sparkling on its lees for six years, you know, you can't sell that wine and you can't make money off that wine for six years and you have to pay for the storage. Yeah, so that's it. That's, there's all those elements. And, then, and people making premium reds and whites have a lot of that, probably a bigger oak budget than I have to contend with. So everyone has their costs. But I think the sparkling, it's, it's definitely the, the ageing and the um, extra manpower taking required for every step that adds to the cost, yeah. And we're small, so, you know, the cost of production is pretty high for us. And But that's... That gives me the freedom to make the style I want yeah. when I'm doing it. Yeah. So you're just making bubbles for yourself. Let's be honest. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm very honest. You know that about me now. <laughs> Absolutely. And how about food pairings? I want to challenge this idea because people just tend to think that sparkling is a drink that they have on arrival, but in fact, sparkling certain types of sparkling can stand up to certainly entrees, mains. And desserts, I mean, we always love to finish on a champagne in my household. Oh, look, I agree. And I was, as I say, living in champagne, Tom, when I was, when I was studying there, it was just served. It was not even thought about, you know, at every single meal, unless it was cheese and then they will bring you out of Bordeaux. But I actually do love um, a crumbly tart, you know, table parmesan with champagne or sparkling. There's a really beautiful synergy with those two. Um, matches and similarly like a salted caramel or a toasted nutty dessert with a sparkling rosé is just heaven. So there are definitely um, so many more opportunities to match sparkling wine with your food that people really should start exploring more because I think everyone loves drinking bubbles but they always think it's only for a certain time of the day, at the, you know, the opening or the start of the day or the party. Um, but oh, please. I can tell you that a lot of work's gone into those <laughs> wines. Yeah, put, put them with your food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for chatting to us today about all things bubbles. I This has been the episode I've been most looking forward to and it has not disappointed me. Fabulous. Thank you, Tom. Uh, guys, that was Kate from Deviation Road. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on By the Glass. Have a fabulous weekend. We hope that you're cracking yourself a bottle wherever you are in Australia or overseas and have a fabulous weekend. Bye.